Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat, everybody. I just want to take a second and um, give us a chance to do some reflecting. And so what I want to do is you have um, sitting comfortable in your seat. Um, I want you to just take a minute, close your eyes, and I want you to reflect on your week. And we're just going to take a moment and to do that. And what I want you to do is I want you to think about some interactions that you've had this week. Maybe at work with your family. Maybe in public with stranger. Maybe it's a phone conversation. Something that brought you life. Something that brought you gratitude and peace. And I want you to take a minute and just cycle through, maybe even in your mind's eye, the faces of the people that you interacted with this week, whether they were hard conversations or life-giving. Maybe they were brief interactions or they were long. And who sticks out to you? Who's coming up? God, it is often that we just hurl, hurtle through life. That our days are consumed with one thing after another. With people who are close to us, family, friends, work, associates. And we miss out on the power of those connections and those interactions. God, that actually you had many, many opportunities to speak to us through people. And to speak to others through us. And oftentimes we're just not very aware or careful with how important that is. So God, we find ourselves together in one room for not that long a time. Will you um, take this opportunity to speak to us? Will you take this opportunity to challenge us and convict us and encourage us that we may be peace to others this week? We pray these things in your name. Amen. This morning, we're going to take our offering real quick. And so if you are new to this place, um, we just want to invite you to be a part 
Um, if you call this your church home, jump in with us. Um, we had a all-church meeting a few weeks ago where we kind of presented the finances and kind of where we're at and where we hope to be at. And what it's going to require is some of you who call this your church um, jumping in and being a part of giving. And so the best way to do that, actually, is you can give on Sunday morning. But um, I would say 90-something percent of people who give to help this church do what it does, very simply, um, 90% of people give online. So it's super simple. You can go through our website to do that. You can set up a recurring donation. You can do all that kind of stuff. But I just encourage you to be a part of it. Um, There's going to be potentially a gap unless we kind of jump in together and kind of rally um, around what God is doing in this place and connecting to each other. So um, a couple weeks, actually two weeks from today, we're going to have a membership class. So if you're interested in kind of rooting yourself in this community, um, there's a lot we want you to be on board with, who we are, where we're going, where we've been, and how we operate. And so um, that's a great opportunity. Lunch is involved. So sign up. You can actually scan one of the QR codes around here, go to our website, hit the connect button, let us know you're coming. Um, we want to connect with you. So if you don't feel like you feel connected in this place, um, we want you to feel that. And so there's actually an eight-week lunch group that's happening after church. There's two spots available, two to three, whatever, today. So if you want to be courageous, jump in on that. It's a free lunch. It's a great opportunity to get to know some people. We'd love to have you there. Guys, there's something called 10-man table. There's two of them that happen throughout the week where we open scripture together for an hour, coffee, pastries, whatever. We meet at different Paneras. We would love to connect you with that. Um, And so talk to me, uh, talk to, Brad's not here, Gary's here. Just talk to one of us, like talk to a guy. You'll probably know what's going on. Um, And then um, Children's is always looking for volunteers, but one of the unique ways you could help this week is if you've ever painted a room before, um, they could use your help. There's going to be a little couple different painting crews happening downstairs. Um, And so we're just trying to retrofit, like re kind of make one of the rooms downstairs um, into a more usable spot for elementary kids. And so if you'd like to be part of painting, um, Katie um, would be the person to talk to. You can talk to me as well, um, and we'll make that happen. So Okay, we ready to get started? All right, we have, let's go, brother. (laughs) We got two weeks left in our series on scripture, and the whole goal of it is to kind of reawaken our connection and our passion for what what scripture is. And so some of you know that there's a a little bit of an anonymous uh, Bible question asking uh, button you can click to send a question our way and that we can help wrestle that out. Now, we've just gotten like two or three questions and two of them are from people on our teaching team, which is hilarious. And well, and, and my mother-in-law. And um, so we're going to wrestle with some of these questions. We're looking at potentially doing um, another Monday night gathering 
which I don't want to make you feel bad, but no one came to it, and I was just here by myself. I know, and a lot of people told me, they're like, yeah, I thought about coming, we were thinking, yeah, but it was just me, but that's, you know, I guess you guys have all the questions answered, so um, we want to do another one, but I don't want to be by myself, so um, we'll talk about maybe doing one um, the following week, so next Sunday will be our last uh, conversation, and then we'll probably do a a big kind of like wrap-up, just talk about scripture together, answer some questions. So we'll, we'll, we'll get that on the calendar for you. But what I wanted to do today is start with this idea that sometimes invisible things become visible. And sometimes, any gardeners in the room? There's like four of you. Um, everybody's like, let's not talk about that right now. It's winter and it sucks. Um, But you know that when you start digging in soil, uh, it's just like, okay, there's more rocks every year that seem to come up, right? Um, And partly that has to do with um, science and the fact that freezing temperatures push rocks up and all that kind of stuff. But it's just like this, it didn't seem like this many rocks were here last year. And that's true. There's just, there seems to be like stuff that comes up that was visible that's now visible. Or parents with kids and Legos. Like you think you get all the Legos and then you feel it in the carpet. Like when you walk, you're walking through and it's dark and you're like, oh my gosh, that hurts so bad. The idea that something invisible becomes visible. Now, a lot of times that happens in our own lives. When invisible things of our heart end up manifesting themselves in invisible things in our lives. And sometimes it's just like, okay, where did that come from? Right? Where did that come from? Why did I just fly off the handle? Why did that interaction hit me sideways? John Calvin's one of the reformers in church history, and um, he once likened scripture to a pair of glasses that help us see the invisible things in life. It's like a way of seeing ourselves and the world in a way that brings out the invisible and makes them visible. Scripture refuses to only deal with surface-level things. Scripture it, it presses, it pushes deeper, and it looks at what nobody else is looking at. It's as, as if like scripture is like holy spectacles, right? That we are invited to see the invisible dimensions of our lives and the world around us. And more than anything, I think what the Bible does is it, it unveils the hidden places in our hearts. And that's why it's so tricky sometimes to read it. For really honest we're afraid to read it because things might come up. Now, it's, it has a powerful effect on us personally, but it also has a dangerous effect on groups of people. It has a dangerous effect on empires. Um, there's a story from, uh, you're going to get some history, um, from Bible translation history uh, that is really interesting. Has anybody heard of William Tyndale? So William Tyndale uh, is 
basically, people call him the, the father of modern English because of his work translating scripture and how that made such a huge deal in England. He was a linguistic, uh, linguistic uh, professor. Um, he studied at Oxford and in England. He was fluent in Greek and Hebrew and uh, like six other languages, which is crazy. And after reading the Bible in its original, uh, I guess its original languages, so Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, after reading the Bible in its original languages, he was just like, why is this not available to everybody? And it drove him crazy. And he was a priest in the Church of England, and he came to two conclusions. The first conclusion he came to was this that the Bible should function as a source of authority, meaning it's like this access point to reality uh, versus the Pope or even tradition. So he felt like, okay, we are taking all the, our cues from the Pope and all our cues from tradition when really we should be taking all of it from Scripture. The second one is, is that every follower of Jesus should be able to read it in their own language. And so he, this was just like a burning passion in his heart. He wanted to translate it, uh, the, the Bible into English, and the church said no. It's just crazy to think about. The church is like, mm-mm, that's dangerous. So... In, in fact, it was actually against the law. In 1408, another guy, John Wick, Wycliffe, tried to translate the Bible by hand and make hand copies because they didn't have a printing press. Well, there was a law put in place. You know, there's a lot of things going on. Wycliffe was killed, the whole thing. So after a meeting with other church leaders, Tyndale goes, listen, like, I'm frustrated. We need to translate the Bible into English. And he ran into this one clown that was like, and he was a priest too, um, that said, we're better off without God's laws than we are without the popes. Like, <laughs> think about that. And uh, to which he, he responded, I defy the pope and all his laws and if God spares my life, ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. So, yeah, it's them fighting words, right? So in 1523, he asks one of the fellow bishops to help him translate it into English. And that fellow bishop goes, there's no way. I'm not helping you. So what he does is he leaves. He goes to Europe. He goes to mainland, the mainland as they call it. And he, he ends up going to a place where he could translate the New Testament in secret. And then he uses the printing press to create a whole bunch of copies. He's a wealthy guy, so he takes it, all his money to do this. He starts to ship smuggle, okay, Bibles into England, New Testament. 18,000 copies. He begins to smuggle these, smuggle, smuggle these into England, right? Which is so crazy. And, it's, and these, these groups of people start getting copies of the New Testament and they start meeting in secret to read it because it's scandalous. It was totally punk rock, right? 
just to read the Bible with a group of people, um, and you're not supposed to. And, and then this bishop that he tried to translate the Bible with starts to buy up all the copies and burn them. It gets better. You think Netflix is exciting. This, right? So he buys up these copies, and then he sends, he gets this guy named Philip to be a spy. He sends them over. He finds Tyndale, befriends him, and then rats him out. So then Tyndale is imprisoned, and he is, Henry VIII is not really happy because Tyndale has written this whole letter about how Henry VIII can't annul his marriage because of scripture. And Henry VIII is like, how dare you? Executes Tyndale. So before Tyndale gets executed, one of the last words out of his, last phrase out of his mouth is this. God opened the king of England's eyes. Four years later, Henry VIII publishes Four English translations of the Bible published based on Tyndale's work. And it just changes. Now, the reason why I tell you that is that the library that we're talking about, the scriptures, has this, like, what is it about it? What is it that got into Tyndale's heart that he was so willing to suffer and die just to make it available? that you and I can now, hundreds of years later, and that we can read it as a community and let it form not only us, but it'll help us in a sense be counterformed against all the other things that are forming us. Why do, in, in, in church history, history of the world, why are historical leaders so afraid of the Bible? Try to keep it out of people's hands. These are ideological empires. Winston Churchill once said that the empires of the future will be the empires of the mind. What you and I are experiencing in our day. I think what scripture does is it gives us like a different story. A different story than all the other stories that are on offer. And actually, I think scripture has a way of unnerving all the other stories that are on offer. The writer of Psalm 119, I'll just flash a few of his uh, different lines on the screen here. It says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Direct me in the paths of your commands, for, I, it, for there I find delight. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts, your, uh, for I delight in your commands because I love them. In the night, Lord, I remember your name. May I keep your law. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than a thousands of pieces of silver and gold. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
kind of sounds like Tyndale a little bit. Like, this is important. This is what I want. This is what I want people to experience. The writer of Psalm 119 is like, he loves it, God's invitations. He loves God's laws. He loves his decrees. He, love, he loves doing what God says. He says there's freedom. He gets it. Now, there'll be some of us who spend time reading the scriptures, maybe even taking the Bible seriously. But we might miss, sometimes we might miss the point entirely. For instance, one of the most difficult things, and I always tell this with other people, they're like, how, how, what were some, some of the di- most difficult things in planting a church? Which just feels so long ago, but one of the hardest things for us was to find good children's curriculum. I was super picky on our children's curriculum, and uh, so is Katie, which is great. Um, we're both very picky, and she works really hard to augment and piece different things together, and, and many times Katie writes a lot of things that go into the curriculum or changes things up because sometimes the danger is taking these big, expansive, intense stories of Scripture and then sending them down to, to a kid's version. It's a lesson, which is not the goal. Uh, not to say we shouldn't read the Bible to our kids. I really want to encourage you to do that. Um, but they're just not allegory stories, stories with a moral. And this is why it's hard to understand at times. That's why scripture is very difficult to understand at times. Because to be honest with you, all good literature is difficult to understand at times. Good literature is complex. Sometimes it's even boring. And often it's difficult to read. Now if you talk to people who are really into literature, what they'll tell you is... There's two types of plots. There are commercial plots, which is what you and I are primarily used to in our culture. Our culture is um, movie-length plots that have rising climax scenes, and then there's some sort of a resolution at the end. We're used to that. Whether you watch a movie or read kind of like a modern kind of story, it's a commercial plot. Like every rock movie ever created is a commercial plot. Um, I've been a big fan of the Gray Man series for books, and I told you about this. It's just spy stuff and blow stuff up, and it's a commercial plot. It's fun to read. I know it's going to wrap up. But literary plots are different. There's like this inner journey. There's, there's, it's complex. It's unclear. It's possible letdown ending. Or an unresolved ending. It's vague. Sometimes it's hopeful, but it's unclear. But most of the story plots in scriptures are not commercial. They're literary. For instance, David and Goliath. It's a good little story, right? Kind of really interesting. It's fascinating. It's courage. It's all the things, right? But what happens after the David and Goliath story? 
See, sometimes we, I share with you a, a quote from Tim Keller a couple weeks ago that just had this idea of sometimes we get lost in these little tiny stories. We just read these little stories in scripture, but we don't read the whole story. But if you were to go past the David and Goliath story, you're like, okay, this David dude's got some real literary stuff going on. I mean, think about David's life, years of persecution and hiding, and then there's all these mistakes he makes. We read about his affair and then his second half of life, right? Second half of life is basically a commentary on polygamy and infidelity, right? And then we read about the power dynamics he goes through with his son and all the political chaos and the violence. And at the end of his life, okay, he's sleeping with a young woman as an old bitter man, and he's calling for his son Solomon to get revenge for an emotional wound that he received decades before. We, we don't read that one to the kids, right? That's not a felt board. It's, like a, it's a literary plot. It's like, this is, wow. Or how about Chronicles? There's the story of King Asa. And King Asa... If you read this story, you can read it in a couple different spots, but King Asa is like a, a good, good king, kind of a bad king. He's, he does some good stuff. He does some not so good stuff, but it's this epic story of national renewal for the people of Israel. But in the last paragraph, it's kind of, kind of crazy. Like when you read this, you're just like, what? He has an issue with one of the prophets, and he has this kind of like stubborn, hard heart. And then it says this, in Chronicles 16, it says, in the 39th year of the reign of Asa, of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though the, his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. Like, what kind of a wrap up is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the dude for two years had this foot condition there's like no moral to the story why are so many stories in scripture like this unclear no climax a little bit of a bummer because life is like this Life from the inside does not play like a commercial plot. It plays like a literary plot. That's why you don't feel like Thor. Some of you look like Thor, though. <laughs> Just so you don't feel like a, these movies, you don't feel like The Rock. You don't feel like... It's the commercial plot. Your life doesn't look like a commercial plot. But we do end up feeling a little bit more like Peter, right? Who sticks his foot in his mouth a lot. A little bit like Hannah. Struggles with in infertility and the silence of God. Sometimes we feel a little bit like Naomi going through famine and death in her life. So when you read the Bible, you're reading literary art. 
And for some of you who are not readers, I'm not bagging on you. I would just, I mean, I get it. We're like, we talked about the last couple of weeks where we're like used to like headlines and quick snippets and Twitter. But I want to encourage you to read one good, big, thick piece of like real good literature in your life. Something like some masterpiece that's out there. And even if it takes you a long time, do you know how long it took me to read Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky? I mean, if you've never read that, dude, it's, it's like the Everest of reading. Just slogging my way through that. And it is beautiful. Read Steinbeck's East of Eden. Genesis 4, all over that thing. One of my favorites is The Count of Monte Cristo. Like, not the movie. Don't watch the movies. Read the book. Chew on that thing. It's a literary plot because here's my point. The point is, is we all read and we're all used to commercial plots. But we're not going to have a framework for reading scripture if we're used to commercial plots. So I don't encourage you. I know this is like, church and someone's like read literature <laughs> not just read your bible like read like chew on something so a couple weeks ago here's what we said and don't worry we're going to get to more scripture here in a second the bible we said is a library of writings that are both human and divine that are uh, that tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus and Jesus, we believe, is the climax and the center, not only of Scripture, but reality. And therefore, all the things that we think are the center in our lives, pleasure, money, career, escape, our whatever, our health, on and on, are not the center, but Jesus is. And here's my claim for us today. To read the Bible is to accept an invitation. It's to accept an invitation to live in congruence with the reality of Jesus. To know more about the Bible. Not to learn more facts about the Bible. Or not even to cognitively know more about Jesus but to be reformed into a different story. Like a counter story. Reorders the loves and the longings in our lives. This is why we need to read scripture for formation, not for information. Inside that understanding, it makes sense why most of the Bible is a story. Big story with smaller stories in it. And we all have a story which you and I, we all have a story by which we make sense of the world. All of us do. We're narrative animals. We love story. We're bent to ask questions of human existence. Like, 
who are we? What does it mean to be human? What is the meaning of existence? What has gone wrong? How do we fix it? All of these are questions of story. These are questions of protagonist, antagonist, plot, character, resolution, conflict, the whole thing. And we're hardwired for narrative, each of us. We can't escape it. Neuroscientists are, are learning that story is the basic principle of how the human mind works, of how uh, connections are formed in the brain. Sociologists say that, the most, uh, that most of our experience, most of our knowledge, and our thinking is organized around a set of stories. The study of linguistics, of, of, of translation, of words, of vocabulary, shows us that narrative structure, like story structure, is not only effective for communication, but for thinking itself. So you and I have a longing for story from the genuine human need to make sense of, of all the disparate experiences in our lives. Like story helps us make sense of things. Eugene Peterson writes this in his book that I told you to buy two weeks ago. In stories, we learn to see patterns we learn about cause and effect. We learn to discover the consequences of our choices, what is right and wrong, and what is important and valuable in life. Honest stories respect our freedom. They don't manipulate us. They don't force us. They don't distract us from life. They bring us into the spacious world in which God creates and saves and blesses, first through our imaginations and then through faith. Imagination and faith are close kin here. They offer us a place in the story. Invite us into this large story that takes place under the broad skies of God's purposes in contrast to the gossipy anecdotes that we cook up on a hot plate in the stuffy closet of the self. Dude, <laughs> Eugene for the win. Let's just pray. And... and <laughs> When we talk about story, psychologists call it mental maps. Sociologists call it worldviews. But historically, it's, it's religion. It's religion. Most of us think of religion as a belief in God or a certain belief in a God or a belief in the supernatural, but religion isn't all, that's not all religion. I mean, Buddhism is not a belief in a God or in the supernatural. Um, Hinduism. It's more about the inner essence. So, so I think sometimes I think, well, what, do you, what do you mean by religion? Well, I love this definition of religion by Tim Keller. He said, it's a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things human beings should spend their time doing. I think that's a crazy definition. When you think about that, by that definition, all people are religious. All of us have a way of approaching life to figure out how to explain it. Despite like the last maybe 20 years, uh, the Christian church has been like, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Um, no, it kind of is according to that 
and so are agnostics, atheists. Following Jesus is a religion in that it is a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things human beings should spend their time doing. Activism is a religion, populism, climate science, doodle ownership is a religion. I know that hit hard <laughs> for some doodle owners. So wait, it's like, I'm just joking, you can doodles for you. All the, all the ideologies and isms are a sort of religion that give weight to the question of who we are, what is wrong, and how do we fix it? All of them. So the question is, is not do I have a story uh, or a religion? The question is what story or religion that am I basing my whole life on? That's the question. The tricky thing about story is that they're not they don't come from inside of us. And you might think to yourself, well, Ryan, that's weird because like someone who creates a, a movie or writes a script or writes a beautiful piece of literature, that story came from within them. No, it didn't. When you talk to people who create story, it's usually from their experience of how life so if you interview George Lucas on how he came up with Star Wars, well, there's a lot of things that happened in his life and what he witnessed that gave birth to story. So every story comes from another source. The other thing is this, not all stories are true, and the story you choose to live and trust in will form the person you become. So the story we live is the story we live out. Now, at the end of this conversation, I just want to put this another way. We spend so much time shaping our stories as a civilization that our stories have a tendency to shape us. And whatever story you choose to live by will shape you into the person you're becoming. So if you're it will influence how you show up in relationship to others. It'll influence how you spend your money. It will influence how you show up to God and how you live in alignment with his reality and flourish and thrive or live, with odd, live at odds with his reality at odds with the way God has designed the body, the soul, the spirit to function as a result, we miss out on that flourishing. So this is where the scriptures come in because not only do the scriptures tell a story, but they also call into question all the other stories around us. The alternative story of Jesus in scripture is a threat to all the other stories. The story of scripture has brought down empires without a single shot. Just by bringing to bear the power of that reality. But here's the most important part for us today. 
we want scripture, I want scripture to break down and tear down the empires in my heart. That's what I want. The ideologies and isms that imprisoned me so that I can live in alignment with Jesus' reality. That's why when we read scripture, we want scripture to read us. We want it to disturb us, but also comfort us. We want it to answer our questions and question our answers. The great act of counterformation in our day and age is picking up this library and taking it seriously. One last Eugene Peterson for the win. He says, it is entirely possible to come to the Bible in total sincerity, responding to the intellectual challenge it gives or for the moral guidance it offers or for the spiritual uplift it provides and not in any way have to deal with a personal, personally revealing God who has personal designs on you. To put it one not everyone who gets interested in the Bible and even gets excited about the Bible wants to get involved with God. But God is what the book is about. And if we kind of close this up, Luke 24, these two guys I shared about last week on the road to Emmaus. I began last week's teaching talking about these two, and we're going to finish this week talking about these two. Because they're leaving the scene of Jerusalem. Jesus has been crucified. And their head is spinning. I'm going to just read this account to you. And I love it. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. About seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And it affected them. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, meaning they stopped walking. <laughs> Their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen. They had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman, women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, this is my favorite, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So these two guys finally see Jesus. But it's kind of interesting, right? They don't see Jesus after Jesus gives them the Bible study of all Bible studies. I mean, this is like, I mean, the greatest Bible study ever, and they still don't get it. They still don't see him. They don't get it after they recall the eyewitness testimony of the women seeing the empty tomb and having an interaction with angels. They still don't get it, right? When did they get it? They got it when they participated. They got it when they participated in the story that Jesus left for his disciples to participate in. Jesus never wrote a word. He never wrote a word. He left us with a meal. All the pages of scripture, Jesus never wrote a word. He left us with a meal. And as they ate the bread, and as they shared community with Jesus, as they entered into that story and they repeated that story, it was like Passover. That's when they got it. That's when they, their eyes were opened. That's when their heart, they, they started to realize that their hearts had been burning within them. So you're going to get the scriptures as you live into its story. As you respond to communion, as you respond to God, as we respond to the story, as we live into the story, that's when our hearts begin to burn within us. So this morning, we're just going to end with communion. We're going to end participating. And my hope is, is that uh, these conversations do something in the sense of giving you permission and courage to let the scriptures form you. And may we participate, I guess, at this moment at the table together, kind of like those two friends on the road. Maybe you've been to a lot of Bible studies. <laughs> Maybe you've been to church a lot. Maybe you still don't understand this story on offer for you. And may you come to the table and experience Jesus. And this table is something that has been celebrated and practiced 
diligently by followers of Jesus for a couple thousand years. It's the story of the Passover that has been celebrated and experienced by followers of God before Jesus. It's the story of sacrifice. It's the story of of giving over, giving up for us. And when Jesus broke that bread with his disciples, he said, this is my body broken for you. Participate. And, the, and then he passed the cup and he says, this is my blood b- spilled for you. That I want you to participate. This is an alternative story to the story that's on offer in this world. So I want to pray and I want to invite you to be a part of that story, to participate in that story, that you may see Jesus again. Father, thank you for what you've done for us. I'm encouraged by points in the history of the church that of people who are courageous like Tyndale people who want others to experience your story of his final words about opening the eyes of the king of England and you did just that I think about my own life and the, and the rocks that keep coming to the surface the places in my life that haven't seen that haven't seen the light that you want to unearth to bring me freedom i think of these two pillars on the road to emmaus and how much the story affected them without resolution until you met them at the table. And Jesus, we're asking that you meet us here at the table. That it's some some mystery behind all of this, that you meet us right where we are together. As we ingest the bread, as we ingest the cup, we're participating in your story, which is a totally different story than all the stories that are on offer to us. And we ask that you would meet us in this place. We pray these things in your name. Amen.